Would you believe that in the time that we've been playing golf, my handicap has not got any better? Would you believe that? I, As honestly, the person who plays golf with you, yes, I, I, I do. I couldn't believe it. Your outfits have got cute, though. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy and politics, where we take you through our peaks and pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits. I'm Principal Consultant Byron Terrace, and I'm joined by Senior Consultant Maddie Burgess-Smith. Maddie, how are you? I'm fantastic and pleased to be back for another opportunity for us to rant and ramble for 20 minutes about the things that matter to us courtesy of the funding of our employer. And today, all of those rants and ramblings relate to the floods. The floods, the cyclone, climate change, weather, and the government's response, really. Okay, Maddie, kick us off. So, pit of the week, obviously, for me, flood-related, is the lack of preparedness. Yeah. The thing that really frustrates me is that resilience is not a new concept to New Zealand, and we've got to look at the situation we've been in post-Christchurch, post-Kaikoura. We're now in our third state of emergency ever, fun fact. Ever, national state of emergency, that's right. The first one was Christchurch, second one was COVID, and now here we are again. Mm. And a lot of those issues that we've seen amount before are back again. Totally. Uh, I think one of the the challenges is we – and I don't mean this as a criticism – we always seem surprised. How is there not a ready-to-go system to share the status of your distressed loved ones? Yeah, I totally agree. Like, missing people, where are they? How in the 21st century can we not get a hold of people in isolated communities? We know that when internet goes down, for example, we rely on the phone system, and then you've got to rely on sat phones, and then there was kind of a there was a period of about 24 hours there where communities, Wairoa, communities in and around Napier – Nobody really knew. Well, first and foremost, before we talk about the infrastructure resilience, that is electricity, water supply, roading, let's start to have a serious rethink about how we build the connectivity tissue of this country. Mm, I think so. But not only is it about you know the connectivity and getting hold of loved ones, and because so much, so much of what has happened over the week is actually about people's mental well-being. Yes, correct. You know there are. I acknowledge at the time of recording there are still tens of thousands of New Zealanders who have not been contacted in some way, shape, or form, and don't have power, don't have water. There's just been an issue for you can't use water in Gisborne. But that whole connectivity piece, like that, is the latest upon which we build so much of our economy. Like correct. if post doesn't work, you and can't transfer money. It, it's unbelievable that you know. Know, we are still at this point. And then, I mean, let's go on to talk a little bit more about that lack of preparedness. We were too Auckland-focused about this. Yeah, I think we were. And I, I'm really impressed by MetService and Niwa for their predictions of where the cyclone would track. Auckland was already on a heightened state of kind of awareness because it had suffered the floods uh, earlier this year. And it was if other parts of the North Island uh, were not as well prepared for the size and scale of what Cyclone Gabriel could bring. Well, let's look at Transpower's role first and foremost. You know, Redcliffe substation, which powers 60,000 homes in the Hawke's Bay, is underwater. Is underwater. And they have no ability to reroute that to anywhere else. And interestingly enough, that substation was noted back in 2016, I think. Transpower is known for some time. As being a major resilience risk. 
risk. And this starts to raise some really important questions about the cost of this conversation, and it's not too soon to have this conversation, but also this need to transition away from repair and rebuild into creating more resilient communities. And that brings me nicely onto uh, my pit of the week, which is the climate change conversation. Mm. And when I say that, I mean this constant discussion about the tensions between mitigation on one side, which is reducing your emissions, and adaptation, adaption, getting used to what becomes the new climate, the new normal. Mm. We talk about resilience and infrastructure. Climate resilient infrastructure is another word for adaption. That's what that is. We need to prepare communities for floods, extra rainfall, banks bursting of rivers, that kind of thing. You've got to prepare for that. And in many of these communities where a managed retreat is possible, you facilitate that to happen. You've got to do that. Oh, and to raise that point I made before, that is going to be hugely expensive. Exactly. For some reason, we're really good about having that conversation when it relates to our Pacific neighbours. Yep. We're not so good at having those conversations when it relates to small riverside communities. Correct. And uh, one of the other issues with this is that that is immensely costly, but it's money that you have to spend, right? Whereas the mitigation side of things, and New Zealand's percentage of global emissions is pretty small, it's minute, less than a percent. We need to do our part to reduce every little bit of carbon and methane that we can at a certain cost, because we cannot shoot ourselves in the foot so that we can't afford to help those communities that are going through it this week. Whilst others are warming the ocean on our behalf. And unfortunately, the New Zealand government can't influence industrial policy in major economies. We can show what best practice looks like. We can do it ourselves, but we've got to do it at such a cost that doesn't mean we cancel out the ability to protect the communities that we need to protect. Yeah, and it's not just about people's homes. It's not just about managing the retreat of right people need to live different places. It's also about thinking really hard about the electricity grid, Correct. about roading networks. Connectivity, to your point. And that's where my big concerns lie because eventually the private sector will start to lead a lot of this change because they will say we simply will not insure your home there. That's a great point and it brings me to one of the success stories of the Auckland floods. One of the biggest resilient communities, and it's quite a vibrant community, an interesting community, is the Stonefields development, built at the bottom of a quarry. Whereabouts is that geographically? So that's central Auckland. It's kind of in the middle of the Auckland Isthmus. It's in what used to be a gigantic quarry. And they built under the concept of a sponge city. So there's wetlands, there's parklands, there's natural ability to soak up water. And so when the concrete jungle of Stonefields, because mm. it's mostly terraced houses and things like that, got rained on, the water went into wetlands that could soak it up and then spread it around the parkland and all that kind of stuff. And Stonefields, despite being built on basically rock, was fine. Yeah. And that's a big opportunity for adaptation. And I think I think what I'm most worried about when we start to talk about kind of urban planning and the future of cities, I'm worried that a lot of opponents to housing densification are going to use this as another example of why we need a further urban sprawl. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I completely agree. Um, I think that there's a, there's a big opportunity in adaptation, which is you can actually improve communities. So you can have denser communities, more parkland, more biodiversity locally, if you plan for it correctly. They're not, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. You don't have to build concrete jungles. I totally agree with you. And I think just accepting the sheer science of the fact that, you know, as the ocean rises, more warm moisture enters the air and it hits the first landmass it finds. Hello, welcome to the, the, the North Island of New Zealand. Yeah, wet tauroa. We, we just need to be prepared for that. And people need to understand this. We, we need to stop treating this like a crisis. 
It's not a crisis. This is this is going to become BAU pretty soon. Yep, and that's you know we've got to spend we've got to spend big money to make ourselves uh, more resilient. Gosh, this awfully sounds like groupthink, doesn't it? But anyway, let's talk about more positive things, Maddie. Peak of the week for me, it's just been the energy to which the government has brought to a lot of this. Now, um, having spoken with our friends in Fano on the ground in the Hawke's Bay, they might feel a little bit differently about what I'm set to say next. But I feel like the government communication on this has been a, just yet another masterclass. I feel like, you know, I turned sitting at home and she's pretty chuffed with the way that Hipkins and Kieran McAnulty in particular have mm. carried themselves. I think they called the state of emergency at the right time. I believe there'll probably be an inquiry into that at some point. About the whole thing. The, the whole thing will be Yeah, if, the fact that there was a state of emergency. There's going to be a really big business in inquiries. Oh, should we? So many. Do we? Uh, we'll take that offline. We're busy. We'll take that offline. <laughs> We're really busy. I think uh, another, you know, so much energy in the government in terms of the response. Hipkins has been well versed in what it's like to get up and speak to media during a crisis. Mm. His experience as COVID nineteen minister and subsequently as police minister when he had to actually go and defend ram raids and all that kind of stuff. What we're doing about it. That's given him quite a thick skin. And so he can turn up and actually communicate quite concisely and clearly about complex problems. And he's, he's already having that really hard um, climate change conversation. So what I was saying, you know, the, the issue with people in Hawke's Bay is that they haven't had a lot of instruction about what happens next. A lot of them don't actually know what's happening in their communities. Mm. People don't know that people have lost their lives or that people are missing or that, you know, it's not just their community where the powers are. And that is nothing to do with Chris Hipkins' communication and everything to do with successive governments' lack of investment in connectivity infrastructure. He's already said after, you know, on-the-ground visits to Tarafari, Gisborne, Hawke's Bay, you know, it is high time we start to invest seriously in what the future of our country looks like and I think that's really important. The only little misstep I think the government took and this is going to be debated for years and years and years and you know, people like me you kind of sit in the policy world, sit in the parliament and watch politics uh, for a living. I look at the shutting down of, of parliament this week and I, I felt that it was a little bit unnecessary and there was a little bit of whinging uh, from both sides. You know, mm. Oh they tried to make it Zoom, well how can you have a Zoom if you're an MP from Napier who's being told Parliament's not sitting so MPs can go back to their uh, electorates but there's no connectivity in my electorate so you're um, just denying them my ability to participate I in Parliament. I always hate that, like, go back to your electorate and help out in your community. They're just, they're just another pair of hands, like yeah. everyone else has. That's right. They are better off yep. making, it, you know, they're better off in the beehive making well, those hard that's decisions. That's the thing, MPs, their job is to hold the government to account. And whether you like it or not, that is an extremely important and robust part of our democracy. Totally agree. Most MPs were here in Wellington. They could have had a parliamentary sitting. Prime Minister Hipkins and Kieran McAnulty, the Civil Defence Minister, could have come in and come out as they needed to. I think it was a misstep and it did show, it did just smack a little teeny weeny bit of that uh, time in COVID where they just like, through their toys, guys got to shut down Parliament, no no scrutiny on us, can't do this, can't do that, no question time, bugger off. There has been a huge amount of bipartisan support for the way the government has gone about this response so far. Um, Parliament will be sitting next week. Yep. And I think that will give the opportunity for, you know, opposition parties, for the Green Party to really start to have their crack at what they think the future of climate adaptation, of resilience, of connectivity in this country looks like and where they think the government went wrong. And again, it's not just this Labour government. I'm, I, I want to hammer home, this has been years of kicking the can down the road oh, and now we're 30, facing the consequences yeah, of exactly. it. Uh, so my peak uh, of the week is on a similar vein. Uh, again, a little bit of group think here. But I just want to reflect on, yes, the floods, yes, Cyclone Gabriel, but also on how energetic the government has suddenly been 
following the uh, appointment of a new Prime Minister. Hipkins has come in, he's told his ministers, you need to get out. Do your job in Wellington, and guess what? Do your job for your portfolios. Ministers have been in the ears of businesses saying, can I turn up to a lunch? Happy to do so. Can I put my hard hat and high vis on? Have a look at your site. For the first time ever, I'm seeing kind of the top five cabinet ministers actually be available. Really engaging. And engage with business. Over the last five years, uh, the government has been very guilty of being very Wellington central. Super insular. Going to stay here. I'm going to say, you can come to my office. I'm the minister of whatever. You can turn up. I'll make a time for you to come to my office. And you've got 25 minutes. Correct. Now that's been flipped on its head. Yes, it's election year, which does help. But Hipkins has really pushed his cabinet to get out and about. And I think that's a good thing for and New Zealand. And it's crazy how personal it's been. It's been ministers of the Crown calling people at organisations to say, I'm keen to come down and have a look. That's right. I think that's a good thing for New Zealand business especially because they'll be able to communicate directly to the horse's mouth to say, this is what's going on in my business. These are the challenges. Um, so I think the, the shackles are off, the ministers are out of, their, out of the beehive, the worker bees are actually out there now. Speaking of ministers in the beehive, Maddie, what's it like to be a minister during a Wouldn't know, wouldn't know. Exactly, but someone who does know is the Honourable Peter Dunn, who will be joining us today to talk about a few things in and around what's it like being a minister during a national emergency. Today we are joined by the Honourable Peter Dunn, former Minister for Internal Affairs, former Minister for Revenue and political stalwart of the New Zealand parliamentary scene. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, So firstly, could you just give us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your political background and also what you're up to today? Well, I was an MP for 33 years. I had uh, my first... 10 years as a Labour MP and then with the advent of MMP branched out to really form uh, what emerged as United Future eventually which was supposed to be a sort of a a Liberal Party of, in the centrist mm-hmm. tradition of the social Demo- of the Liberal Democrats in Britain and oh, others yes. etc. And we had our successes and our failures and I guess for what about 15 years we were a support party to both national-led and labour-led governments. I think it's the longest stint of any party in government in New say. Zealand, actually. And we haven't seen anyone else come to fill that hole in an MMP system since. No, and and, and that worries me uh, because I me think too. I think the space is there, but it's very difficult to fill because, as you know, we started out with a bit of a hiss and a roar and then mm. spluttered for a very long period of pretty low levels of support. And it was one of those things where people would always, you know, I always used to say to people, if everyone that said they voted for us had, mm. we, we would have been a majority government forever. Oh, you know, but that's, friends. That was the part politics. of the problem, I think. And people, one of the things I think under MMP is that people really value their vote perhaps even more than they did under First Past the Post, mm. so that they think, I'd like to vote for you, I agree with what you say, but I'm not sure you're going to be in a position to do anything, mm. so I can't afford to vote for you. Whereas I think in, a, in, a, in an FPP system, it's you know it's a much easier I agree sort of situation, and, and we got caught up on that. Yeah, interesting. And you know, you said you're a centrist party, and you managed to support both mm. kind of left leaning and right leaning governments. So that's testament to exactly that. I think uh, you've also got another couple of jobs on the side, which you mentioned before. Oh yes, I, well, since I've left Parliament, I've, I've sort of branched out into other areas. I'm chair of the. United Fire Brigades Association, which is the organisation, I've got to get this plug in, that represents <laughs> volunteer firefighters. Uh, volunteer firefighters are 85% of New Zealand's firefighters, 
and we cover 93% of the country's landmass. So, wow. so 12,000 uh, people or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and so you, you take something like the current cyclone emergency in, in, on the East Coast and Hawke's Bay, the vast majority of the responders there will be volunteer firefighters. And tragically, of course, we had two killed mm. in Murawai uh, just a week or so ago, and uh, that's testament, I think, to their commitment to their communities. It's that emergency response that we really want to talk to you about today, because obviously in the wake of the cyclone and also the storms up in Auckland, we've seen Parliament declare a state of national mm. emergency, and you are someone who had been in the bunker. You'd spent some, some real time dealing with some of New Zealand's kind of hardest moments. We'd just like to hear a little bit more about that. Mm. Well, one of the things that concerns me about the current situation, or did initially, was that the the fallback position almost post-COVID seemed to be, well, Parliament goes into abeyance. Yeah. Actually, this is the time for Parliament to be full on, and it's come back this week, and, and, and that's good. But, you know, Parliament's not an optional extra in emergencies. It's the place where, A, the government's held to account, and B, the government needs to explain what it's doing, and C... Uh, and we saw this particularly during COVID, it needs to get the legislative authority to do certain things that it wants to do. And under COVID, it didn't. It just proceeded full steam and suddenly re- worked out it was acting illegally, so it had to come back later. So I was very concerned when, when the first reaction was to say, well, Parliament's going to mm. not sit next week. But the other thing about it, though, is that governments need to be, in, in these situations, they need to be nimble and flexible and yeah. prepared to do a whole lot of things that they mightn't otherwise countenance. But they also need to appreciate the limits on their abilities. Mm. They can't stop the floods. They can't stop an earthquake. Uh, they've, they've got to mitigate circumstances afterwards. And they've got to deal with people who's, yeah. whose individual concern might be minuscule in terms of the total, mm. but it's the biggest thing in the world to them. I remember many years ago being told by a, a, an eminent mental health specialist at the time that in traumatic situations like this, the real impact is not immediate. Mm. It's several years down the track. And we've seen that with Christchurch. Exactly. And he, he said to me, it's about four years. And the lag was p- precisely that in Christchurch. And I remember saying to him at the time, this was pre-Christchurch, why? And he said, well, frankly, when there's a disaster, people are too busy yep. dealing with the immediacy of it. It's once the immediacy passes and they start to reflect mm. that the problems emerge. So our systems need to be geared as much as they are to the immediate, but also to... Where are we going to be in four or five years' time? What sorts of needs are there going to be emerging? Speaking of Christchurch, you were in the executive, you were mm. minister at the time of the earthquake, and particularly with the revenue portfolio. What Describe what that's like. What is that first emergency response being part of a national state of emergency like, and how did you find it when you were there? Well, the first thing, of course, was to determine that we could operate. Great point. You know, that, that actually, um, with, with all the, the buildings coming down and everything else, that we were actually we inland revenue was actually going to be in a position to do anything. Wow, so 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 securing, you know, were we capable? Having got that assurance, yes. Then what is it we need to do? And I, as I, I remember a situation that emerged within probably forty eight hours of uh, the initial earthquake. We'd made some decisions about emergency relief packages for businesses, particularly. And I remember Paula Bennett, who was the social services minister, <laughs> ringing me extraordinarily angrily <laughs> to tell me that my department was bleep, 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 useless because mm-hmm. they were demanding paper records from people and all sorts of other information. These were about subsidies. And you know, people couldn't get access to buildings. All the, all the records were floating in the wind because they'd been... Yeah. Under some rubble, yeah, potentially. Yeah. So I, I talked to the Commissioner of Inland Revenue at the time, and he said, it's a very good point. I said, so why, you know, 
can we change the system? Can mm. we actually? He said, of course we can. We can check other ways. If, if you come in claiming something, you don't have to bring all the paper proof. We can check other ways that you're, you're valid. Um, so of course we can change it. And, uh, and I said to him, so how come we haven't to date? <laughs> and he said, well, basically, if you want the, the honest answers, because we've always done it that way and we've never been a need to change. Welcome so, to Wellington. Yeah, so that was the sort of, that was the initial impetus. Yeah. The thing that really bothered me, though, subsequently, I'm talking now months down the track, was as life started to return to normal, unfortunately systems started to want to return to normal exactly. as well. So all the new innovations seem to be temporary. And how, do you, how do you keep that? How do you keep that kind of, right, we got innovative, we got creative during the response? What can, what can you do, um, especially as a, as a minister? Well, I think the biggest thing that, that. That, that struck me uh, was that I knew, but I hadn't quite appreciated the extent to which the various silos of government were rigid. Mm. And so, you know, yes, we can cooperate uh, because we have to, but we really don't want to. Mm. And once we don't don't need to, we can sort of creep back to it. So it is that patch protection. It's breaking down, you know, the systems. I mean, I, I came across this years later when I was Minister of Internal Affairs and responsible for the transition to digital government. A, the government had most of the information it needed anyway. We didn't need to collect more information. But B, if you looked at the ACC, the police, Inland Revenue, uh, MSD, they were all separately collecting broadly the same information. (laughs) The number of times I've had to put my stupid double-barrel last-name email into a government system. Uh, And they won't like the hyphen. So so, you you think, well, hang on, why is everyone going out there and collecting it four or five times over? But they all had their own separate reasons. Of course, ah, yes, but we need it for this reason or we need it for that reason. Uh, and, and I think that, again, is part of um, breaking down some of those barriers. But it's also a massive cost barrier for government because it's replicating systems and duplication, systems. Duplication, and, yeah. duplication yeah. over and over mm. again. You spoke just before about the wage subsidy package mm. or you know the, those mm. fiscal packages that IAD were able to roll out within 48 hours. What do you think we'll be seeing in the Hawke's Bay? Well, I, I was thinking about this before and I was thinking the Hawke's Bay situation is, you know, COVID is relatively easy compared to Hawke's mm. Bay. It's one problem. It's a pandemic and that's got a particular focus and requires certain actions. But in the Hawke's Bay, you've got a, a range of problems. It's quite a, it's a much broader situation than mm. COVID. And then you've got the individual, you know, however many hundred thousand people are affected. Developing the response is going to need to be very flexible, very cross-sectoral, and it's got to be partnership between central and local government. Mm. But the government, it seems to me, is still wanting to try and sort of be centre stage. It yeah. got knocked off its perch a bit by Wayne Brown in Auckland. Uh, <laughs> But I'm not sure it's actually helping. No, and we said the, this the before. Recovery. At the end of the day, all of these politicians, they want to be there, mm. but they're just another pair of hands on a shovel. They are elected mm. to represent our views here in Wellington, and I think that's where they should be, doing yeah. exactly that. Well, that's, that gets back to the point of why Parliament should be sitting. Correct. I mean, some, one of the, I, I, got, I made a, as you know, wrote a column about and got a, a, a broadly positive response, but some of the, the negative ones were along the lines of they have far more use in their communities. Mm, why? Doing, what they be doing? doing what? Yes. That, and that, that's actually, the reason a lot of them had to become politicians is they couldn't find a use for themselves <laughs> in their communities. I mean, that's the po- you make the, make the valid point. Their role is not to be out there on the end of a shovel or you know baking scones or whatever it might be. Their role is to actually, if they're the government, then oversee the programmes that are in place. If they're the opposition hold the government to account for what That's it's right. doing. That's right. And, and you don't do that on the end of a shovel, no. um, you know, wherever. I think uh, even during the 1919 uh, flu pandemic here, 
our parliament still sitting. Mm. Well, our despite parliament the, sat through World War II. The, yeah. Despite the risk yeah. of actually, you know, yeah. uh, passing on yes. the flu. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not difficult uh, <laughs> if you've got the commitment. But it seemed to me that there was, in, both in the COVID case and in, in the early stages of, the, of this response, a sort of a, we don't want the distraction of having to answer questions yeah, and, and explain what we're doing. Mm. We just want to get on and be sort of in control. And I think that's dangerous. I do, I do too. I do too. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for your insights. At the end of every Iron Duke Partners podcast interview, <laughs> we go through a very quick fire, hot or not. Maddie, did you come prepared? I'm more or less prepared. Purple is a parliamentary colour. Hot. Nicola Willis for Ohariru. Hot. Ooh, there we go. And lastly, the use of parliamentary urgency in a crisis like this. Uh, not. Nice. My three, uh, bow ties. Hot. Who would have guessed? New Zealand as a republic. Hot. And local governments, but fewer of them. Hot. Ooh, nice. That's positive. Very positive. Very positive. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And please keep writing because we sure love reading it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Excellent. No worries. Well, I think that was one of our best and most insightful interviews yet, don't you? Yeah, nothing to do with the interviewers, everything to do with the interviewee. I think he just got one take wonder, it was easy. Maybe we're the people that need practice here. Maybe we are. But until then, we'll we'll see see you next week. week.